Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by my good friend and yours, Mr. Blake Arnsworth. Hey everybody. Hey. What's going on, man? Not a whole lot, man. Just a, a nice Thursday evening. It is a nice Thursday evening. Uh, it's episode 147. It's November 21st. I feel like i got to say all these things. Uh, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast. we got some things to talk about today. We're going to talk about this aviation safety bill that targets challenges posed by flight automation. We're going to be talking about these holograms that you can feel. And there's a race to replace our phones with smart glasses we wear everywhere. But first, I do want to talk about some programming notes here. Uh, We will not be on next Thursday because here in the States, it is something, it is a day where we like to uh, think about all the things that make us thankful for being alive, where we like to uh, think about all the things that make us thankful for being alive and stuff like that. So we will be gone for Thanksgiving. Um, So no show, but we will be back the following week. And then, uh, yeah, we can talk about our Thanksgiving um, exploits. Uh, but first, hey, what's going on with you, Blake? Not a, it's been a whole week. Yeah, no, it's been a whole <laughs> week. It's like it's like we haven't done this in a while. No, this has been good. Uh, so for me, some, remember, I don't know if we talked about this last week or not. Did you already have Disney Plus last week? I did. Okay, cool. So here I'm going to follow up because I was – or my girlfriend's dad was nice enough to give us access to his account and we get to watch all sorts of cool stuff like the Mandalorian and in game and you know, all the things that Disney kind of owns. But one thing I wanted to like kind of bring my own insight into was I kept seeing a lot of articles and I think we talked and touched a little bit on this last week about how, how unprepared the platform was for launch and that kind of stuff. And you know, I found it to be the easiest thing to log into and get started with immediately. Now, this is like, I guess, a week or so after launch is when I actually accessed it. So maybe a lot of kinks were worked (sighs) out then. But in terms of, you know, just accessing the app through Xbox and logging in, it was the simplest I had ever seen. And, like, the UI itself is laid out. Yeah, you you know what? I I feel like this is a perfect segue almost into my banter here as well. So, look, like, my... I... Uh, I feel like I'm getting to be a grumpy old man because, like, I feel like everybody today is so entitled for things to just run perfectly smooth on launch, especially for highly anticipated things, right? The problems with Disney Plus were just a couple bugs where maybe whole seasons of shows would disappear, seasons would appear out of order, uh, maybe episodes would would uh, disappear, Um or playback would just stop and couldn't, right? These were like minor issues in the grand scheme of things. Yes, it was widespread. Um, And I'm gonna talk about something else here too. Uh, A lot of people have been kind of bashing the Stadia launch and Google for um, not being the smoothest. And I do have to say like, there could have been some more communication things, but I, I feel like everybody just kind of, and. I don't know, maybe that's just not the way world works anymore. And maybe I'm more tolerant to those types of things. Like I'm okay if something's not entirely polished as it comes out. Like I like to see things improve over time. And you, you know, I, I don't know. Um, well, that kind of goes back to last week when I was talking about like my experience with audible that it might be because of the, you know, profession that we hold that we just kind of, we appreciate the entire experience and the growth of our product. But I mean, you've had a pretty good experience with the actual product of like Stadia, right? Because I mean, you well, okay, streamed so, a little bit of it earlier, and it looked it looked pretty great coming through Google Hangouts, even. Yeah. So okay, let's let's back up and finish your thoughts on Disney Plus because I got a whole lot of thoughts on Stadia that I want to talk about. But um, so so yeah, you you find it pretty easy to use. I do too. I think it's a pretty great app. I think there's a couple features missing, but I don't see it as like a as a uh, yeah, so, so I've definitely had have, have like limitedly used it because I watched. I basically got on, watched the Mandalorian, and the next day, like, just streamed a bunch of of the older Star Wars movies, and that was kind of it. Um, so I don't, I haven't really played around a whole lot with it, and since it's not like directly linked under my account, I'm not like saving stuff and seeing how the account features work that that well. 
Um, so I don't have too many opinions on it, but for something that's like one weekend to launch and it was that expansive and that many people were using it or as many people yeah. reported were, it's pretty amazing. Like considering so they did. Yeah. They did say there was like 10 million users on the first week. Yeah. Basically. Well, like considering that the, the like call of duty title that came out this, this October is still like feeling very in beta after almost a month after being released and like a, gathering a lot of different like kind of hateful feedback from players and stuff like that i mean the fact that disney plus like launched in, in over a week's time and had been able like kind of hateful feedback from players and stuff like that i mean the fact that disney plus like launched in, in over a week's time and had been able to make so many changes and so many updates i mean that that just speaks volumes to kind of what kind of support they have behind it and how much they care about people's experience of the product yeah, uh, I I enjoy Disney Plus as a thing. I think it's I think it's fine. Um, I think I I hate using this term, but I think people are just being crybabies about like these big launches. So I'm going to segue into Stadia right now because Stadia launched Tuesday, and uh, if you're unfamiliar, this is a this is a platform where you are basically streaming games from Google's data center. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there who are kind of like, what's the point? You don't own the games. Google owns the games and you're just kind of renting them, but you have to pay for them. Um, Also, like, why would you want to stream something because of all the input lag and all that stuff? And I mean, it's not it's I don't I don't. Okay. anyway, that's a whole separate thing. People are kind of getting upset and up in arms about this this launch because um, the product itself is not... Okay, Google did a presentation uh, back at Game Developers Conference this year, uh, I think back in June. It, it was June. Yeah, because it June was like 6th. you like, went ahead and did your Founders Edition. It was way back in June? Yeah, I did it right after the presentation. So um, back in June, they gave this presentation that promised a platform uh, where, you know, we, you and I, Blake, would be able to stream... Uh, like I could be able to see your stream on my thing. You could use Google, um, the the assistant, to say, "Hey, how do I find this collectible here? Or how do I beat this puzzle?" Uh, and it would integrate with YouTube because it knows where you are in the game. It would be able to pull up a YouTube context right there in your screen. You could see where it is, and then it would go away. Um, you could do all these interesting things, like a uh, thousand player battle royale where you know there's fully destructible environments on these because it's on google's blades and because they're all processing in one location um all they're doing is feeding a stream to you and so you can kind of share processing power across multiple things anyway they they kind of gave us the future of gaming in this presentation i think a lot of people were expecting that at launch and it is absolutely not that at launch um and I will say Google hasn't done a great job at communication with the community. Um, and I know like outward communication, especially with a big company like that, has to go through many channels of approval before it can be sent out. Um, but like there was a bug where people who ordered first were not getting their codes, who ordered first were not getting their codes. Uh, and the importance of this is that you can choose your stadia name and you're a founder so you get to like first pick of your names um so there were there were a lot of things that could have been handled better but i think a lot of people are just like yeah it's okay but thinking about the basic like think about like the technology involved with this thing you are streaming a game to your devices through a chromecast i'm i'm kind of my mind is kind of blown by this right you're streaming to a chromecast you're streaming to uh, any Chrome browser. Like, I could play this on our work computer, and that's not the most powerful thing in the world. Like, I can't run a game at high settings on it, but it still looks great. And it works with any controller, um, except for the Chromecast. You have to play with their controller because it's Wi-Fi enabled and connects directly to Wi-Fi uh, and reduces lag that connects directly to Wi-Fi uh, and reduces lag that way. And it's surprisingly... Well, I guess not surprising. I guess it is surprising. I don't know. Like, the more I use this product, I'm more I'm just, like, blown away that, you know, I am playing this thing. And, like, I, so my point of comparison is Destiny. Destiny 2. And I played this on the console because uh, I wanted a good before and after. And, like, it takes me probably five minutes to boot up the game, select my character, and get to a planet or do something. 
on Stadia because everything's solid state drive, presumably. It takes me like 30 seconds and it's all streamed and it's high definition and I can 60 frames a second and it's not 60 frames a second on my PlayStation. And I'm like, this is great for a lot of reasons. And if I have a Chromecast that I have portably, I can throw it in my suitcase and play it while I'm on the go. And maybe internet Wi-Fi at hotels isn't that great, but... You could still give um, it a shot. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. I, I Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. I, I The basic promise of streaming AAA video games to any device... I mean, even now at launch, they're, they're only doing, like, their Pixel phones, but they're soon going to roll out. And so it's this whole thing of, like, the incremental rollout... I think Google could have done better at tempering expectations, say, hey, at launch, we're going to have these features, and then slowly over the next year, we're going to implement this, 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 and this, and this is kind of our roadmap. Um, so I, I get why people are upset. I They're treating this as a launch, but it's really like a early access slash beta, uh, a paid beta, if you will, because you have to buy into it by paying for the controller and the Chromecast. Yeah, I mean, hence um, the name founder to, like, the early edition stuff. Because, I mean, most most people at startups will tell you when they, like, have the first, you know, one to ten employees, that's like finding the founder that you didn't know you needed. So, I mean, by right. beta testing something like this, I, I don't know, the onboarding material for Google um, wasn't so great because, like, I didn't even know when I was going to get my code. I'm still not even quite sure because of the communication lack aspect. And if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't have even, like, double-checked some of my other emails to see when the actual thing was launching. But as far as, like, from what it sounds like from your perspective and what you've shown me both, um, it seems like the product itself is pretty dope, even though it's like, not yeah, exactly that... what they what, what they were showing at, you know, the web developer conference this year or game development conference. Yeah, it's like... It's 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 basically like saying the impossible part has been done. Like the rest of it is just icing on the cake. Like the impossible part of streaming video games with minimal lag. Like I, I didn't even mention that. Like it is it feels lag free. And the the thing is, like you can get used to lag. You can get used to how long it takes you to do an input. Um, things don't have to be as snappy as you're. You know, you can get used to it. Um, things don't have to be as snappy as you're, you know, you can get used to it. Um, even, even saying that, like Digital Foundry did a whole, um, whole analysis on this and, and the graphical quality and all that stuff. Highly recommend you go see it. Uh, go watch it if you, if you can, it's on YouTube, but, um, you know, like I, I can, the lag to me is barely perceptible. I'm not a twitchy shooter or a, uh, you know, super competitive player. So it, your sensitivity might vary, but for me, it just doesn't, it's not there. Um, I see it as no different from playing on like my PlayStation, except it loads faster. It looks better. It's running at a faster frames per second. And so like, it's a total win for me. Um, and the fact that like, I can suspend my game and pick it up on my phone when like it's kind of great that's pretty um, wild yeah that whole aspect of it the, especially since it's like like you said it's on a blade with in a, in one of google servers it's not like uh, it's not the same as kind of your console running something so that's kind of the incredible part to me is just the feat of technology they put together and launched with you know hiccups but not the kind that you would expect yeah i don't know it's it's stop being crybabies anyway if you do have Stadia, if you want to get in on this, Blake and I are on the ground running with this for founders. Um, then you can add me, at least. Blake doesn't have his yet, but he will get his, I presumably, within the next week. Um, we did start a Stadia channel on the Slack. Uh, and because I was one of the first ones to sign up, I, is, I was able to score the name Jedi Knight. So go look for me on the platform. Um, add me. Just let me know you are a listener. Uh, or hit us up in our Slack on the Stadia channel and uh, find me that way. Okay, uh, I do have one other banter thing here, but um, do I'll it. just leave it. At, I'll just leave it at one like one sentence. Star Wars is at an all time high right now, and it's pretty great. The Mandalorian has just been killing it, and the new video game that came out is just awesome. Um, so I'm just gonna leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. All right, well, let's get into this next part of the show. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything from 
medical, transportation, privacy, security, whatever it is, as long as it relates to the field of human factors, it is fair game for us to talk about. Blake, what do we got up first? That was an artifact from an older time. <laughs> Barely copied these show notes. Oh, All right, what do we got up first, Blake? That never happens. All right, so first we got this aviation safety bill. Uh, that's posed by flight automation. Clearly copied these show notes. Oh, All right, what do we got up first, Blake? That never happens. All right, so first we got this aviation safety bill uh, that's posed by flight automation. So this is kind of a interesting follow-up from last week's discussion. Um, so... All right, two senators pin legislation to directly address challenges around the automated systems that contributed to two separate crashes of Boeing 737 MAX 8 aircraft that occurred over the last year, killing hundreds and grounding MAX flights indefinitely. The Aviation Automation and Human Factor Safety Act of 2019, that's incredible, introduced thir- introduced Thursday aims to establish a federal... Aviation Administration Center of Excellence dedicated to addressing dangers posed by increased automation and pilot response and also implements new and old safety aviation safety recommendations targeting flight automatics. The bill would improve safety assessments and enhancements to boost pilots' understanding and ability to work with automated systems and components on all Boeing 737 MAX aircraft, specifically, as well as other transport category category airplanes the aim is to minimize the potential for and safety impact of pilot actions that are inconsistent with manufacturer assumptions and if passed the aviation safety act would also institute the creation of the faa center of excellence to be focused on flight automation and human factors in commercial aircraft the center could receive appropriated funds that the faa administers as it deems necessary and it could be tasked with enhancing collaboration across government, academia, and the commercial aircraft and airline industries, and also lay out research goals in areas relating to increased reliance on automation in commercial aircraft. So that was definitely a mouthful, but that is so many levels of exciting, even though it's it definitely is. rooted in something horrifying, horrible, but you know, still exciting kind of conquest. It really is. I mean, this is opening up a pathway... Uh, for not only um, to ensure that, you know, kind of these, uh, the the safety is up to par, but it's also uh, kind of opening up this pathway to collaboration, right? From from government, academia, commercial, you know, all that stuff. So, so that's really exciting. Um, just for a little bit of context, in case you didn't listen to last week, uh, in October of last year, there was a flight that plummeted into the Java Sea minutes after taking off. Uh, in March... There was Ethiopian Airlines uh, that also crashed shortly after takeoff, and everyone on board died during these crashes. And um, the black box data from these crashes actually came back, and uh, you know the the cause was rooted to be um, some one of these newly introduced automatic automated systems known as the maneuvering character crashes occurred. So the fact that um, you know the seven thirty seven is having all these problems. Um, and that the human is kind of out of the loop with these. Now, this bill basically um, would mandate improved safety assessments and um, basically improve uh, sort of the the pilot's understanding of these automated systems within these aircraft. Um, So I think there's a lot of goodness here, uh, and, you know, I just, I, I really do hope that it passes it's, it's, I don't think it's passed, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's talking about Bill would be. Yeah, they like uh, so, they yeah. inked it, you know, last Thursday or something, but it's still got to be yeah, passed. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that Pass I it. yeah, hopefully, I am a little bit frustrated reading this for a second time. Like why, cry baby? Yeah, I know, right? Why this kind of stuff really wasn't thought about or implemented like in the first place? It wasn't thought about or implemented like in the first place and i'm wondering if it's because like there's already a lot of automation that exists in the aircraft and that's something that I, I think that is worth calling out here is that there is a lot of different automated systems that exist in an aircraft already it's this particular kind of maneuvering characteristic augmentation system and then anything else that's kind of going above and beyond what's typically automated that's really where the focus is for the act like this and the problem with the 737 max um, but but Especially when we're talking about the FAA, I mean that's a that's a big place where you know human factors 
has always been kind of implemented in or definitely in aviation in general. So, I mean, this is great to see, but it, it is frustrating to read this kind of bullet line from the blurb talking about that the aim of this entire program is to minimize potential for safety impact uh, and safety impact of pilot actions that are inconsistent with manufacturer assumptions. So that just frustrates the hell out and safety impact of pilot actions that are inconsistent with manufacturer assumptions. So that just frustrates the hell out of me, like as a human factors, you know, person, person with a human factors background that if or I'm assuming that that, really means that manufacturers aren't strictly having to test all of the assumptions that they're making about pilots when they kind of create these systems. And as we know from autonomous car testing, like it is so crucial to kind of get people in the loop, even if you're going to take them out of it. Cause I mean, you never know how people are going to have to interact with these automated systems in emergency situations and stuff like that. Um, don't be wrong. This is an awesome bill. And I ho- really hope this like center of excellence comes together. Cause I think there's a lot of good that can be yeah. done by human factors, practitioners, like getting a little bit more in the ground level with government and how in kind of like bridging the gap between academia and then the commercial world is a great move forward too. Yeah. I think the interesting thing to me is that we've had, we've had instances where lives were lost because of said automation. And I don't know, I'm sure there has been some bill passed uh, after each one of these incidents. And it's almost like refining just to a point where like, we're trying to make sure this never happens again. Um, I'm not well versed in aviation history. I'm not well versed in the aviation automation space. Uh, And so maybe a better person to ping about this would be Mateo. So if you have specific questions, sorry, Mateo, I'm throwing you under the bus, ping him on the Slack. I'm sure he'll have some thoughts about it either way, but um, if anybody needs to be at the center of excellence on the human factors behalf, he's definitely the one he is. So, I mean, look, here's the thing is that with each law or bill or uh, rule and regulation, we get closer to that reality where there's enough checks in place for this won't happen. And, you know, the, the hope is that you get to a point where there's zero, um, zero deaths as a result of automated systems and humans interacting with automated systems. I don't know if we'll ever get there. However, um, you know, what, what is the saying from tragedy rises, uh, something, something about the Phoenix. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I think this is like just another way to check and ensure that some of these systems are going through the necessary requirements. Um, before actually being fielded. So that way, something like this MCAS system in the 737 MAX doesn't get out there again. That's true. But I do want to bring back a point from last week that the, I guess it's the chief of the FAA was talking about. Yeah. Um, and I like, it's great that there are, you know, added legislation that requires a lot of, a lot more like wickets to be passed. But I think that's, it requires a lot of, a lot more like wickets to be passed. But I think that's part of the problem now, right? Is that we, we get like these boxes that we have to check. And like the, the reality of that is sometimes, even though you're checking the box, maybe you're not doing your due diligence to get there. You're kind of, you know, you're a business. You're trying to make money and you're trying to stay above the bottom line. But the chief himself, mentioned that it's kind of a design process flaw right now and it again it seems like with the center of excellence concept is kind of focused around like making sure to be bringing in representative users into the space to try and understand like what what implications this is going to have if we make a lot of assumptions and then like what are the implications of the, the problems they face now um so i think it's a good combination between you know passing legislation because that's how the FAA will probably allow get a lot of this stuff to be like mandated across different you know airline partners and stuff like that but I do think that design change and like design philosophy difference that the FAA enters and UX design or whatever it may be into that process is going to be what's most helpful in tandem with this kind of stuff yeah hey I got one more um one more kind of note before we move on I just love that this has human factors in the name of the bill yes um, I I really love that because it's making it front and center that's saying, hey, look, this profession that's kind of like off in the corner traditionally is now front and center saying you need to meet these. And I think that's great. Yeah, the cool part there is like I'm assuming, right, if if senators are having to read this specific, you know, bill or piece of legislation, like they're going to have to 
ask ha- ask the question like what is human factors what does that even really mean because i would assume uh, you'd hope so yeah well i would assume that most people that would read that don't know what it means or don't know that it's a profession yeah i i mean i think there's a general awareness rising right but i think you're right like if you don't know what human factors is then i think it's it's good that people are going to be asking these questions I think it's it's good that people are going to be asking these questions. Um, all right, we got uh, two more stories this week. Blake, why don't we get into the next one here? All right. So walking, talking holograms have been a staple of sci-fi f- films since Princess Leia was magically brought to life in Star Wars. And now scientists in Britain say that they can make even more real realistic 3D versions of a butterfly, a globe, even an emoji, which can be seen with the naked eye, heard, and even felt without the need for any virtual reality systems. So a team at the University of Sussex in southern England said that technology currently in use can create 3D images, but are slow, short-lived, and importantly rely on operating systems that cannot produce tactile and auditive content as well. So to fill in the picture, so the, <laughs> fill in the picture, so to speak, the team created a prototype called a multimodal acoustic trap display, or Mat D. Uh, which can simultaneously deliver visual, audio, and tactile content. So this used, in this case, particles to form an image in a small box containing arrays of very small speakers. So since the system is based on sound waves, it allows the hologram to be heard and also even felt. And so the system obviously attracts attention because the of the science fiction film backdrop, but the team said it could have a wide range of applications from computing to biomedical procedures and so on. So this is kind of nuts, Nick. I mean, not only are we talking about holograms, we're talking about like holograms you can touch and feel and see. Yeah. Did you watch the video on this? I did not. Uh, it's pretty cool. So they they kind of go through um, how the physics of this thing works. Uh, you know those like LED displays that spin around really fast and they kind of say something on them and it looks like um, it's just like floating letters. You know what I'm talking about yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Like, it says like Happy New Year and that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the same concept, except operating in a 3D space where um, instead of a instead of a centralized motor spinning something around that has LEDs on it that makes it say something, um, it is literally sound waves and compression waves pushing up like little little beads into this three dimensional space and projecting light onto it in that three dimensional space um, and sound. So it looks like an object is floating. And so if you were to reach out and touch this, uh, it could presumably react to you by moving the particles in a way that, you know, the, the sound waves carry it in a different direction and move it around. Um, but it's very cool to see in action. And, uh, you know, it still kind of looks like that, that happy new year light display we described. Um, but yeah, I think the applications of this are, are pretty, uh, they, they mentioned like medical applications, uh, and a few others, right? Do you have those there? Uh, <laughs> they actually just mentioned that they... Bye, boom. Yeah, there goes the boom mic. <laughs> that it would be useful in applications themselves, just like that it would be useful in that kind of setting. Yeah, I don't... I think the, the thing that could be useful, right? Like, imagine an ultrasound um, that uh, allows you... Like a 3D ultrasound or something, in medical at least... Um, you could almost reproduce that 3D representation uh, with this device and kind of look, like, spin it around and manipulate it in such a way that you can almost see what's on the inside in a 3D environment, and you can show patients what's going on, and you can kind of plan surgeries that way. Um, I can see that as being a really valuable application, especially for, like, surgeons oh yeah that training aspect of it or like experience again kind of what we've talked about before of like some of the benefits of even vr simulations is that you know that hands-on experience conducting either a surgery or getting used to interacting in a specific way with a different set of tools whatever it may be and in this way if you're actually able to acting in a specific way with a different set of tools whatever it may be and in this way if you're actually able to now you know not have to have as many as much like equipment, I guess, if you will, that's that's VR based or have to wear goggles to do this. And then you're having something that's actually interacting back with you from like a tactile and maybe auditory point of view. It could even make just the, the learning experience that much more intensive or real. Well, I'm not even talking about learning. I'm just talking about like, imagine there's a patient with some ailment that needs surgery to remove, um, like like appendicitis or something. Let's say you do an ultrasound 
over the appendix, appendix right? And then the doctor can then um, use that ultrasound data to produce a 3D image of what's inside that patient's body. And that way, he can get a 360 degree view of the thing before he actually digs in and pulls it out. Um, so I'm, I'm saying like they're actually using, uh, they could actually use this type um, so I'm, I'm saying like they're actually using, uh, they could actually use this type of concept uh, in situ during um, some of these surgical procedures or like, you know, when, when they need to act fast uh, and they don't want to just dig around willy nilly to find something. Um, like let's say there's, there's shrapnel from a gunshot victim, um, uniquely American problem, but like, let's say there is some shrapnel or, or something in somebody's body and they do an ultrasound or they, you know, find, find the shrapnel before they actually operate. That way they can minimize, they can view this thing in the hologram, spin it around and look and see like what's nearby. Oh, they have an organ over there. We need to come in from this angle and kind of plan based on this 3d image. Like that's, that's the kind of application I'm thinking of. Um, but I can see it for training too, right? If you have this actual 3D hologram that reacts to what you're doing, um, who's to say that late a training scenario? Yeah, I wonder if it like what kind of applications it has from the computing world because I'm like imagining, you know, representations of how act how data is actually distributed across you know different server networks or stuff like that, and how that visual representation could almost help you reorganize or change the hierarchy of how that information is distributed. So I, I don't know this. It's cool that again we're seeing something kind of being born out of what's typically used in movies or that's very related to sci-fi, um, and now it's kind of actually emulating technology in the real world. And now it's taking a step further of making it something you can truly interact with, not just from like a visual perspective or maybe even talking to it or having any kind of like background for that. But it's it's awesome that you can now interact with it both in a physical way and you can also hear it since it's all based off of just sound manipulation yeah cool stuff you have any other closing thoughts i do not all right let's move on with our new story right after this short break human factors cast strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week we pack news interviews reviews and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on but we can't do it without you you see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors Etc., we're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and we're back. Thank you to all of our friends over at, uh, oh, these are the wrong ones. Thank you to all of our friends over at NextGov, Fizz.org, and CNBC for all of our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, you can join us in our Slack where MVP Mateo is posting links to all these articles. And if you find anything interesting, you can post it in there too. Uh, we do try to post these as we find them. So uh, we got one more news story, Blake. What do we got up next this week? All right. So most of the biggest names in big tech are racing to create smart glasses that we wear everywhere and that replace our phones. So Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Snap, Facebook, Apple, Magic Leap, and others are all working on the same form of smart glass or headset that will change how we view the world around us. So instead of pulling out a phone out of our pockets to talk to people or interact with apps, we may do these things simply by speaking to it or looking. We may do these things simply by speaking to it or looking through a set of glasses. So there's a race to be the first to make a set of glasses that everyone will wear, which means that they have to be both fashionable and sleek enough to wear all day and everywhere you go. Advocates of the technology hope that you'll one day be able to replace every screen in your life with just one pair of smart glasses. And we may still be years away from seeing this happen, but the apps, smart voice assistants, and software are already there in place. So once these companies can make the computer small enough that we cannot carry phones around everywhere since our glasses will be able to do just about everything that you need. So I think it's still hilarious that 
we're going to move away from phones and everybody's going to wear glasses in a world where most there used to be a stigma. I don't know if it exists anymore as much that you were kind of a nerd or it wasn't cool to wear glasses. And now (laughs) everybody at some point is wearing them. Nerd says the guy who I see this like this is far future, but I see this as an intermediary step between, uh, you know, the smartphone where we kind of do all of our stuff now uh, and integrated um, cybernetics, if you will, where we can see computer overlays projected onto our iris from within or, you know, something like that's far future. Um, But we will have sort of these like built-in computer chips into our brain to help us offload processing power and whatnot someday. Yep, Neuralink um, would be one of the first, I have a feeling. Uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, that aside, I think uh, I think this would be cool. I, I'm, I tend to think of these as like, how can you, uh, as a company, provide me, somebody who wears glasses already, the option to uh, sort of retrofit my current setup with this thing um and i don't i don't know uh sort of retrofit my current setup with this thing um and i don't i don't know i am kind of uh i i don't know i i I don't know what do you think about what do you think about these glasses in general like do you see the promise of having all the information on your head um because that that does a lot for things like interaction methodology and how to uh manipulate data like i i can't see a world right now where you know that there's no like touch screens are so ubiquitous because you just touch them and apps are built into there but like i think with smart glasses we might have to think more about like voice control and motion and gestures and i just see that as very sloppy for interaction right now and you know we have a long way to come with those types of interactions before um phones and we also have like the technological aspects of this too right we haven't solved battery power i mean it's come a long way but um think about your phone you know high-end phones could go maybe two days without a charge for uh normal users for heavy users it might be one day and so like uh, or even less than a day. How how do you combat, like, for me, I wouldn't want to be without my glasses for hours of the day, and I'm a pretty heavy phone user. So it's like, what? I don't know. There's a lot to overcome here. Those are my, just, they're not organized. Those are just my thoughts. I kind of vomited them out. What do you think? I'm thinking that, I don't know what portion of the population already wears glasses, and then, like, the subset of that that is super tech-savvy or really interested in technology but I feel like they would do themselves a solid if they really targeted already wear glasses wearing users. Because they'd be good adopters. Yeah, because I mean you also, you'd be a first adopter. You're, so it's really the barrier of like it being weird or being unused to walk looking at something through glasses is good. But also the fact that you need them. So this is a, a population yeah. of people who actually needs to have glasses on so they can see anything. I mean, so yeah, hold hold that thought really quick. I just want to jump in here with some of these. Um, statistics that you were asking. So according to the Vision Council of America, approximately 75% of adults use some sort of vision correction. About 64 of them wear eyeglasses and about 11 of them wear contacts, uh, either exclusively or with glasses. So you have 64% of the population, oh, sorry. Yeah, 64% of adults using eyeglasses and 11 of those using uh, eyeglasses and or contact lenses uh, and over half of women and about half of men or sorry, 42% of men wear glasses. So there's a lot of the population there. It's a pretty good segment of people. Yeah. There's a lot of the population there. It's a pretty good segment of people. Yeah. Cause I feel like that's yeah. a great first adoption kind of sec- sector just to get people used to it. Cause I mean, it's going to be kind of jarring if you've never worn glasses before and how you kind of make it an integrative experience. I think you're right. The interaction methods are not there yet. I think voice is going to be one of the main ways that you kind of interact with this kind of stuff. Um, but that's going to have to come a long way. I think that a lot of the gestures we're used to with your hands are going to move towards your eyes. And you'll you'll probably end up using more subtle eye movements to you know walk through some of this information, if you will. Or there's going to be some sort of integration between like 
letting you manipulate your own environment through like augmented reality. I could see that being a potential option. The thing that I can't quite wrap my head around is how how this is really going to work all the time. Like, do you? Is it kind of like you put your glasses? What what ways do you kind of make sure that you're not interfering with the environment? Because I could I could see like interacting with you know your glasses on and you're at work with your computer as well. Like the interplay between those two pieces of technology would be kind of difficult at first. Um. So I don't know. I don't. I. It was really great to see how you know Hololens and what is it Google Glass kind of transitioned into a completely different industrial market, like outside of that consumer realm. So how they're going to bring it back into the consumer realm and like provide utility, just like the phones did. I think it's going to just kind of come out of nowhere. But I. I also think that this is going to be such a small, or or like a short-lived, such a small. Or, or like a short-lived kind of design or concept. I think it's going to move so fast to, you know, trying to get things that are e- either like Neuralink or putting more memory on your brain. I think that's going to come so quickly once this becomes ubiquitous. Uh, I don't know if it'll happen quickly. I I tend to think that this might be closer than we think, but then the Neuralink stuff is a longer way out. Um, you did mention a couple things there. You mentioned HoloLens and Google Glass. I do want to ch- kind of check in with some of these companies just to kind of see where they're at with this stuff and um, you know what they're working on. So Microsoft, they're working on the HoloLens too, it's launched out. They're working on sort of these augmented reality products. Um, and uh, they're also working on, uh, you know, the, the there's an army version of the HoloLens called the IVAS where they can overlay images uh, like positions of fellow soldiers and all that stuff. Um, HoloLens also has commercial, uh, so like I could put my calendar on my wall at work and I don't have to have a screen dedicated to that. Or, um, you know, I can put my chat uh, blown up on the side of my wall too, and, you know, I can see that there. Um, right now, the HoloLens is pretty big. Uh, it's expensive, but, you know, it's happening. Uh, Snap, you might know them as Snapchat. They have these Snapchat spectacles. I sound like an old person. You dear Snapchat. <laughs> With a Snapchat spectacles. Um, yeah, they have these uh, Spectacles 3 glasses. They go on sale this week, according to CNBC. Uh, they let users snap pictures and videos of the world around them and then use augmented reality effects to those clips inside the Snapchat app. Um, you can't see any information from these glasses. It's purely like just a, uh, a camera. You got Google that's doing the Google Glass Enterprise Edition 2. Um, yeah, so there's, so there's, uh, some stuff with Google Glass here. There's, uh, they, they show information, but not 3D augmented reality. Um, people don't like that Google wearers are able to record them at any time, but they killed that, uh, and focused on business use. Um, Google's still investing in the space and most recently launched a new version in May for commercial use. Looks like we're going to drop in the maps features to some of their augmented reality overlays in the glasses, which is yeah. that's a great kind of utility and use for it. Yeah, maps on Android and iPhone already have uh, features that would be much more useful on a set of glasses, like Street View. Um, yeah, okay, we got Magic Leap here. Uh, Magic Leap, uh, they launched their first headset in August 2018. Um, it's Pretty bulky, capable of showing games, 3D animations, virtual video screens, and more all in a digital world around you. Um, it's still expensive getting into this space, too. It's reportedly set to launch in 2022. Uh, I did uh, run into a couple people at HFES a couple of years ago from Apple that were attending VR sessions. So they've been working on it for a long time. Um, you know, they kind of had their eyes on the space for a long time. Um, uh, let's see here. What else we got? Facebook is doing Oculus Quest, which is kind of their, uh, it's a VR headset, but it is untethered. So you can actually just have the full experience without being tethered to a computer. Um, uh, and I know it has some see-through functionality, uh, where you can see the world around you with it on. So that's not directly, it's, it's an AR VR thing, uh, mostly used for VR stuff. Uh, Amazon is getting into this with Echo Frames. Um, it hasn't really, Amazon hasn't really talked much about their glasses. 
um, but they did announce kind of that they are interested in the space. It would have much about their glasses, um, but they did announce kind of that they are interested in the space. It would have the Amazon voice assistant built in. Um, and so they're focusing heavily on sort of this voice control aspect of it. So that's kind of a check-in to see what all these major companies are doing. Uh, you can imagine that, you know, as they all progress kind of at their own niche um, kind of hook, right? I think there's a lot to be gained from the other companies and just say, well, what if I took, you know, the voice recognition from Amazon and I took the um, AR uh, integration from HoloLens and I took the uh, enterprise solutions from Google and I took the um, picture and augmented reality capability from Snap and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and put it all into one device. Uh, and then everybody copies that model uh, and just improves on their own kind of thing. I think that's what happened with smartphones. And I think that's what we're going to see with, I think that's what happened with smartphones. And I think that's what we're going to see with um, these glasses as well. Yeah, I think that's ultimately going to be the the real thing. We're probably going to see all these different versions come out, and then they'll each have like a different kind of niche thing that they're really focusing on. Like some are focusing on video games, and then some are like really trying to be integrative of their services or whatever. And then what is going to be the best is whoever brings it all together, um, whoever can anyway. And I think the route that Snap and I guess Echo Frames, from the way that Echo Frames sounds anyway. It's kind of the the one to be paying attention to in terms of like consumer attractiveness because it's kind of just using not bulky glasses, not the, not something that's used for like, you know, that we've seen from Holland's too or the old Google Glass or the new Google Glass, like something that's pretty supposed to be pretty sleek and feel like normal glasses, but it's bringing technology right to your forefront of your eyes. Right, a, a big part of this is going to be style, right? Like people don't want these big bulky things on their face. They want to look. A, a big part of this is going to be style, right? Like people don't want these big bulky things on their face. They want to look good. They don't want to look dorky. Yeah, you're not trying and to put I on night is, vision goggles and go outside. Yeah, I think there is sort of that stigma still, right? Like sleek glasses look sexy now, and and if you have something big and bulky on your face, then it's like, mm. so, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, we don't want that noise being made at everybody. Yeah. All right. Any closing thoughts on this? It's just exciting to see this coming a little bit farther along. I really want to try a pair of like one of these when they are a little less expensive or maybe definitely want to try out the Oculus Quest. But I think that's kind of a different realm of glasses, if you will. Um, yeah, it's more of a headset. I, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe they can send us a code or a product review. I don't know. Yeah, that's which That'd be perfect. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and get into this next segment. It came from. That's right. All right, we're switching gears, and it's called it "Came from Reddit." What, what did you say it was earlier, Blake? <laughs> oh yeah, just Google the thing. Just Google just the thing. That's this. Google it. That's this part of the show. This is the part of the show where we tell you to just Google it, uh, because all these Reddit answers, all these you should see the feed that we get for Reddit. It's like. All this stuff, it's like, that's easily Googleable. That's easily searchable. That's easily searchable. Which doesn't make like, any sense to me in, like, 2019 with the probably the age of people that are asking this stuff on Reddit. Like, they know that they can go find the answer somewhere. They know this. Anyway, we found one that is a pretty good, um, a, a pretty good discussion point, I would say. All right, so this one is posted in the user experience subreddit, uh, posted by Lord Cthulhu. Um, oh, the Lord. And this... And this one is titled Disgruntled Intern at a Software Startup Who is in Need of Advice and Guidance. Now, they do mention throughout this that they are um, someone involved in UX. Do mention throughout this that they are um, someone involved in UX. It's on the user experience subreddit. But I feel like a lot of this is applicable to human factors. So I'm going to replace where I see uh, makes sense. This is going to be a little lengthy, but I feel like uh, all this context is necessary. All right. Hey guys, this is quite a long read, so sorry in advance. I'm in need of some advice for what to do and what the next step should be. In September, I started my second internship as a product design intern for this startup, for the software startup. The people here are really great. I think it's a very low stress environment. The main issues that I have right now are is what I'm currently doing has nothing to do with human factors or product design. What I've been doing since I started is making assets for social media posts and making illustrations. Uh, it's not related to my role at all. Essentially, it's just marketing. It's a lot of grunt work that isn't very challenging or engaging in any sort of way. 
I've talked to management about it and they've said that once we get a client who needs some project ideas, but more often than not, I feel really empty about the work and there's a lot left to be desired. Um, they go on to say that they're the only person in this role on the team. Um, and somebody else just recently left because of, uh, you know, they didn't really have mentorship. Um, they mentioned that the company has acknowledged their concerns and they've been interviewing other folks uh, in a similar role since last month, but there hasn't been any confirmation. Overall, a lot of what they're doing in the company feels absolutely pointless and there's been nothing to show for it. They've gone to write, I'm feeling resentful towards the quote work and I'm feeling like a stagnating as a professional. Okay, so that was a mouthful. Um, Blake, what would you recommend to somebody who is in a situation like an internship that is not getting tasked with the things that are most relevant to uh, progression, are most relevant to uh, progression of a career. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here, and we're gonna have different opinions. So I think so. Let's get prepared. Maybe I don't know. Hold on, I'm curious if we will we have will, different opinions. I think. Okay. So okay, hang on. Maybe one, maybe one thing maybe not. that is probably and this I always hate. I love this part of the show. It is my favorite part of the show. I say this to Nick every week or whatever. But the part that I always hate is I wish I could actually talk to the person and get more details. Because even though this is a long written you know blurb or kind of advice seeking answer, um, I still have questions. Because here's the big thing. If you're an intern, just, blow, just drop it. It depends. Yeah. All right. There you go. All right. That's going to be it for today. I'm just kidding. Yeah. But, but okay. So if you're an intern, it's your second internship as a product designer. I wouldn't be freaking out too much. I think you're probably all right. If you're just interning and you're just trying to understand what it's like to have an internship at a different company, that's what second internship. You'll probably will have to do things that are not in your wheelhouse. That is kind of part of startup culture is just you're not always going to be doing something that you either know how to do, you're comfortable doing, or that you think falls in the tier of things you should be doing. It's dually interesting that you're kind of like in this UX human factors space, but they that really won't be as big of a deal until you get clients. So it's it'd be cool to know what you're working on, but of course we don't know that. Um, so you kind of just have to do what you have to do, and I would take it as a way to you know, enhance a skill. Cause if you are interested in doing being a UX designer or a product designer, which this is kind of those buzzwords are mentioned throughout this post, it can't hurt to be a better illustrator or understand a little bit more about SEO or how to do social media marketing to help build your own brand and leverage those skills outside of your own job. So I think you're, you're kind of in a good place. I mean, if you're at a, you're at a startup, that's a great, great experience to have, especially as an intern, but you're at a startup, that's a great, great experience to have, especially as an intern, especially as somebody just starting out. Um, the part about mentorship, again, I'm coming from the startup perspective. You're probably, you probably are your mentor, or you probably were the mentor for the junior boot camp grad that came in there. Because trying to get like really talented designers into startups can be difficult, or you're in a situation where they don't really know what they should be doing with UX designers, product designers, or human factors people. So they're just kind of putting you where you, they think they can use you or where they need bodies. So, I mean, if you really want to get the most out of the situation, like based on the time you have left at the company, if you have kind of made up your mind, you don't know if you're going to stay there or not, like make a project on your own and like figure out what skills it is that you really want to expand. Cause it sounds like you have at least some understanding of what UX and product design does. So maybe even ask your friends who are in the field too, like what do you work on or what kind of problems do you use? So maybe even ask your friends who are in the field too, like what do you work on or what kind of problems do you tackle in your job or what are the types of products you create and figure out a way to take on a project for the next six months in your internship that, I don't know, you can show to whoever your upper management is that you feel like isn't listening to you. And that way you can talk about it in your portfolio, you can talk about it in interviews, or you could even like be the force of change that creates, you know, a design culture in this software startup company. And as it grows, you could end up like as UX director or product design director in like a year or two or whatever it may be. Uh, I just think you're, you're probably in a better place than you're giving yourself credit or allowing yourself to see outside of. Um, but let's, all right, Nick, what do you got? Cause I don't, I don't know what more I can really say on this one. 
Yeah, you thought we would disagree on this one, Blake. I you remember what I mentioned crybabies earlier? I don't like. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like using that. T Options for where you can find work right now are going to be very limited. I consider most internships lucky if you get into a position where you are actually doing the thing that you are trained to do. Um, there are better fits than others for sure. I think largely though, what you're kind of overlooking here is your opportunity to integrate with this company and look for some of those opportunities for uh, you know, incorporating design. Maybe you come to your supervisor and say, hey, look, I've, uh, you know, this product that we're working on will eventually need um, user feedback, but why not start now so that way we can get ahead of the curve so that way there's less, um, you know, churn time on some of these developers and that way there's less rework. And if we figure out exactly what it is now, that could really help us for requirements, that could really help us for uh, a variety of different things that, you know, we don't necessarily, that, you know, we don't necessarily need an interface for right now. And again, like I did adapt this from the user experience subreddit, so I think they're probably more design focused. However, if this was a human factors role and if they are like a UX person and they're like a UX researcher, then I think these are important things to bring up. I think you always have to be sort of looking outside that box and saying, what's a roadmap for how we can get user data that matters, that informs the product, even if we don't need a user interface for it right now. Um, so I kind of agree with you, Blake. Look within your role, uh, you know, and and try to make the best of it. Um, it's a short-term thing. You're gonna try, presumably, to find a job unless they decide to keep you on. And you know, if if they decide to keep you on, that's when you negotiate and say, no, look, like this has not been my wheelhouse. I need I need this, this, and this. If you want me to stay, and you have that leverage get out of this and get, you know, like, let's say they don't go for these things, these ideas that you have. There's still another way forward. Um, I've mentioned on the show several times that it's all about how you spin these things. And so if you are, you know, um, sort of uh, doing these assets for social media posts and making illustrations, then you can say, you know, you've, you've taken user data and uh, tried to match that to whatever these activities you are doing, you know, like, it's all about how you spin it. And um, I think that's probably that probably goes a longer way than you might think. So anyway, that's, that's my two cents. Do you have anything to add to that, Blake? The only thing I've got to add, and it's I, I say this to a lot of people that I meet, especially through like mentoring through Design Lab or when somebody asks me about job advice, especially in startups, because it's something I wish somebody had told me because I just I always thought that I was either doing a bad job or like the company didn't know how to mentor people or an early stage startup or a startup of any kind like it, and you're talking like something that's max 25 people working there like you're just you're a late founder to the party then you need to really think about that when I say it because you're you're not just like some intern or whatever that is not doing exactly what they want to do it's more than than that because they don't they probably don't have the infrastructure for you to do what you need to be doing and so it's kind of up to you to go ahead and identify that and start trying to figure out what does what does design look like in this company and how do I either help them get there or leave a roadmap behind for whoever ends up behind me so they can be the, you know the design founder if you will yeah all right well that's gonna be it for today everyone uh let us know what you think of the news stories this week. Uh, you can join us in the discussion on our Slack. You can comment right. Uh, you can join us in the discussion on our Slack. You can comment right on those news stories and have a nice discussion with uh, Blake and myself and Mateo and and Svee and all of the Human Factors Cast sub uh, not subreddit Human Factors Cast Slack members out there. Um, you can follow us on any of our social channels at H Factors Podcast. If you want to write us directly, we will we will uh, prioritize those over Reddit. I promise. But you can write us at show at humanfactorscast.com. If you like what you hear, want to support the show, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice or consider supporting us on Patreon. We do love your money, um, but you know, not required. You can you can it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. 
Uh, and of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about crybabies? You can always find me in the Human Factors Cast Slack if you'd like to cry it out, but you can also find me across social media at Don't Panic UX. And Stadia soon. For me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome or Jedi Knight on Stadia. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends! next time it depends Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.